Hello and welcome to this new episode of the Fundraising Radicals podcast. I'm your host, Craig Pollard. The Fundraising Radicals podcast is about turning the world of fundraising upside down by sharing and exploring fresh, global perspectives on non-profit fundraising and leadership. These unscripted conversations with friends and colleagues old and new, ordinary and inspiring people who are fundraising and leading community projects, causes, charities and social enterprises in Asia, Africa, the Middle East and Latin America and beyond the traditional boundaries of the non-profit sector. I hope today's conversation challenges and inspires you to think differently about the world of fundraising and your place in it. I hope it helps you to reflect on your own fundraising practice and leadership. But now it's time for another dose of global fundraising ideas and inspiration. Welcome to this latest edition of the Fundraising Radicals podcast. I'm your host, Craig Pollard. Today's conversation and dose of global fundraising ideas and inspiration comes from Lillian Mabonga, MBA, who is the straight-talking regional grant specialist in Africa. She works for Living Water International, a US faith-based nonprofit that works in the field of WASH, W-A-S-H. That's international development speak for programs that work with communities in the areas of water, sanitation, and hygiene. Now, I first met Lillian when we were co-presenting a session at a virtual conference on fundraising across borders, during which she talked about her love of studying and collecting qualifications. Lillian was originally a civil engineer. She started her career in project management, working on a multi-billion dollar project to upgrade the infrastructure of Kenya's main port. Now, she's currently adding a development studies PhD to her MBA and many other qualifications. She's focused on COVID-19 vaccination uptake amongst pregnant women in Kenya. Now, Lillian has a wealth of experience in fundraising and delivering grant income, and this is blended with a strategic and project management mindset. She deeply understands the role of visibility and careful positioning that increases the likelihood of organizations like Living Water in Kenya and across Africa of getting funded. Lillian always offers practical insight into how to build and deliver high quality, solidly funded programs. And she always keeps it real about the tactics, the practical real life tactics that organizations can use to be visible and successful in building these partnerships with global institutions. Now, today's conversation takes place during the recently imposed curfew following the political riots in Kenya. And Lillian talks about the challenges of managing donor visits to Burkina Faso, for example, after two recent military coups. These illustrate that political violence is another contextual challenge that fundraising organizations based in many countries in the global south and their donors that support them must navigate together and the additional challenges this adds to donor visits and day-to-day program delivery. I know you're really going to enjoy meeting Lillian today. Lillian, welcome. Thank you, Craig. What is, your, what is the subject of your uh, doctorate? I'm majoring in development studies because very interested in, from my background, I'm a development specialist, so I think it makes more sense to just specialize in the same field. What specific area of development studies are you 
Okay, right now, the development studies is broad, but I'm interested in, of course, the, the WASH. Uh, I'm thinking, I'm focusing on WASH, uh, of course, hygiene and sanitation, the, the things that I'm doing on a daily basis. Yeah. So, and actually, my topic is very interesting. Tell me. Because it's not even WASH related. What is it? <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at uh, COVID-19 vaccine uptake among pregnant women in Nairobi County. And it's actually very interesting for me because I was pregnant during COVID. So I had to make that decision. Do I take? Do I not? Yeah. Wow. So it's really, really personal subject for you then. It's very personal. Very interesting. I think when, when, when I get the ethical clearance and start the, collecting the data, the results will be very interesting because the women have very varied opinions. Right now, we are not like at the peak of COVID, but uh, the people still, their culture, their religion changes and affects how people think, feel and react to things. Yeah. Yeah, particularly something like vaccination as well. The, the those the sort of cultural memories for these things and suspicion around these things is massive. Interestingly, very huge suspicion of vaccines in Japan, where I was during COVID nineteen. Long memories of vaccination campaigns that had gone badly wrong, mm-hmm. um, and I imagine it's a pretty similar situation in Kenya too. Oh yeah, and you know we are Africans, so culture. It depends who you listen to. Like if it's if it's, if you go to church, whatever the pastor says, that's it. If, but then even the doctors, they didn't know because you know COVID is a very interesting subject. You can't really say take, don't take. There wasn't enough data or statistics to support, so you can't tell someone. Even my own doctor said, I really can't advise you because we don't have enough scientific data to advise you for yes or no. So I really, I'm really looking forward to the results, just to see how and how what comes up and how uh, my my report will be in terms of recommendation. Yeah. And when when are you due to finish? Hopefully, um, end of next year. It's uh, it's tough, you know, balancing work, school, family. But I think I'm. Uh, but uh, <laughs> of course, it's so much. On, in, on top of everything you didn't what you didn't feel you had enough on you just needed to throw a doctorate in there too generally i love studying like the way someone would love skiing or that's how i get to relax ironically the way you say oh let me go bungee jumping i'll say oh let, let me do another course that gets me to relax <laughs> At, at Cornell or, um, you know, the Kenya Institute of Management or, you know, the Project Management Institute. I Yeah, I, I think the first time I met you, I was massively intimidated by just the sheer volume of qualifications you have and the, the quality of these things. It's incredible. <laughs> um, what, so you, you, you talk about sort of your education as being, is it a kind of a hobby? Is it just a, a deep passion? Is it Where does that come from, that? <sighs> Okay, actually, let me just tell you a joke. My friend said, there's this friend of mine, he's known me like all his life. So he was like, someone bewitched me. Like, it's literally witchcraft. Because like, when are you going to stop? When I did my first master's, I said, that's it. Then I called him for the second graduation. And now PhD. So he's like, I know even after your PhD, you'll do something else and something else and something else. But for me, it's, I I worked with Japanese um, when I worked at the port. Uh, Kenya Ports Authority, 2007 to 2012. That time, we were dealing with engineering, setting up, like the birth 
when you when you enter Kenya, the bus it's uh, we it was minus eight, which means we only had small ships which would come into our country. So the design that we were working with this Japanese was to get at least to minus twelve. So that means you have to do dredging, hydrographical works to so that big post Panamax ships could come into our country. So we did that, and then we did uh, the Lapset Corridor, which is a Lamu port, South Sudan transport corridor, which went to uh, Kenya. South Sudan, Ethiopia, and I think the government is currently implementing the designs that we did at that time. So for me, I have a problem working in an environment because I'm in project and strategic management, right? So I can't be here and not understanding basics about to wash. So <laughs> I, I just feel the need to be very comfortable in my environment. That's why I keep, I, because in project management, I've done agriculture, I've done um, engineering, now I'm in wash. And it's very interesting. Of course, I can't do all those uh, courses, but at least to have the basic fundamental understanding of what are, what, what are they talking about? So I ended up doing the shipping course at that time, understanding how the whole logistics works. So it's very interesting. It's, a, it's an interesting start. So I'm, I'm intrigued by how, how did you move from shipping into international development? <laughs> at that time, uh, shipping was... Um, I lived at the coast, so I think growing up was like, oh, this is the in thing. You either have to work for Kenya Revenue Authority or Kenya Ports Authority. That was the epitome of success, like your benchmark on success based on that. But then at that time, that was actually my first real job in 2007 with the, the Japan Port Consultants. But then the Japanese really, they're into staff development. So they really, uh, they trained me so I could say I'm a pseudo engineer because I understand like engineering concepts. I don't think I'll go to engineering school, but I understand like because I worked with engineers, with architects, and my work was still the same. Program management, coordination, ensuring that the plans we set. Are right. And you remember it was a multi-billion dollar project in three different countries, heavily funded by the government, and it brought a big change for us uh, as an economy. Because imagine if now we are having post-Panamax ships come, it means... We can do more at once. Uh, I remember what I did at that time for my undergraduate was how to have 24 hours, uh, the port operating 24 hours instead of eight hours. So I made some recommendations. At least two of the three were, were adopted by the port. That was very interesting. So there was, they started to utilize IT because before it was just, you, you have manual papers, you go to like 18 offices for stamps. So that radically changed. Yeah, so when we finished, it was like a five-year project. Uh, I moved to Nairobi because we had like phase two. So I'm based in Nairobi right now. And I moved into agriculture. That was the, the next big project. And I was working with Dr. Eleni. I don't know if you know her. She was the one who started the Ethiopia Commodity Exchange. Ah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, so I worked with her for some, some time. Then the next organization I worked for was also in agriculture. So I spent another four or five years uh, doing agriculture and wash. Uh, and after that, it's when I came to Living Water. And they're just purely in wash. Yeah. Yeah. Transferable skills right the basic skill is just projects and strategic management because if you have the basic skill you can do you don't have to be an expert in that because what i'm offering is project management skills so whatever kind of project i know i can i can do it because the basics are the same this is right so i used to be an accountant meant a long 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 time ago 
And those project management skills um, and that sort of financial background have been so helpful throughout my career. I mean, there's obviously a natural link between finance and fundraising, but it, it, so it's really interesting hearing you talk about the transferable, you know, the project management and the, and the strategic management as being critical for what you do. But, but what, I, what I often see are people coming in from other sectors, struggling with the cultural fit from the corporate sector into, into, into international development, charities, nonprofit sector. How do you transfer those skills and navigate new cultures? Of organizations because it's a big shift right working for a, a japanese consultancy to for example <laughs> into the non-profit space yeah so since the the skills remain the same like you correctly said um what i'm offering is project and strategic management skills right and what i liked working with the japanese was we were a team of about 70 so those people from australia kenya U.S., Japan, there's like 20 or 30 people from Japan. So was this multicultural environment. And that, I, I was really happy because that was my first real job. And working in such a diverse multicultural environment gives you a basis, just knowing how to integrate uh, working with cultures. But I liked that the Japanese were my first employer because uh, if you lived in Japan, you should know this. The discipline and... Uh, they really work hard. They really work hard. They don't want excuses. If you can't deliver, you really have to say in advance. So I believe, like, working with the Japanese set me up for success because they gave me a very good foundation in terms of being disciplined, knowing what you want, and being very appreciating people's time. You can't just show up late, no excuse, no, your report is late. Like, it's not. Respect. Yeah, absolutely. Because they told me there's something called kari kari in their culture. Like they can literally slit through your, your stomach if you come late. I don't think they do that in this modern day century. But that was the basic of everything and foundation, knowing discipline, hard work. If you need something, you need to work for it. If you can't deliver, you have to give ample time. And if you're doing something, you have to give it more than your best. You can't just give average. It has to be beyond. If you ask for something, you also have to give it beyond what you're expected to do. Yeah. That all feels very familiar. <laughs> <laughs> so you're in Nairobi now. I'm in Nairobi. You weren't expecting to be in Nairobi. Can you say a little bit about that? Uh, Kenya is, uh, right now, um, I, I was struggling because I thought, oh, we need to do this with Craig. But the politics right now, it's a very volatile environment. Uh, since the last two weeks, Mondays and Thursdays, we were literally not leaving our houses because there's riots and demonstration. People still are contesting the elections. They want the servers to be open. The cost of living has gone up. So, like, everything has gone up. Power, cost of water. Like, life is very, very expensive. So, I understand. So, as a middle-class person, I can just sit and watch from the TV, but when I see those people throwing stones and asking government to listen to them, I can relate because my power bills have gone up, my water bills have gone up. I can't go. My, my kids could not even go to school, and it's just like 10 minutes away because you don't even know if you're driving, if you, your, your car will be stoned. Mm -hmm. The risk was really high, but thankfully yesterday they called it off and they said they're going to try talking with the opposition to get some dialogue i hope it works for the sake of our economy 
because the economy is really the basis of all the work that we do. Because even us, um, tomorrow we're supposed to go with some donors to the field. They were even scared to come because they're thinking, hey, are we going to be safe? What we are seeing on TV, I don't think maybe we need to cancel this. So, and as I'm in charge of fundraising for Africa, that is a concern for me. If the economy is bad, it means donors are not going to want to invest in my country. So what happens to our fundraising targets? Where, where are these donors coming from? Are they coming from overseas or from within Kenya? From the US. The US, yeah. Okay. But at least they're coming. So now they'll be here tomorrow. So tomorrow we can safely go to the field. Yeah. Yeah. Where does the majority of, of the funding that you secured over the last few years, where, where, what sources does it come from? Is it mainly from overseas institutions? Uh, yeah. We... It's actually, um, okay, so, so Living Water, is a, it's a Christian INGO. It's a base, the HQ is in Houston, Texas. But we are in Africa, uh, the HQ is in the US. We are also in Latin America and the Caribbean. We have about six countries there. Africa, we have nine. We're also in India. So total like um, 18 countries. But our major donors, uh, the, the Americans, so if the American economy is not doing well, like right now, if you know, you've seen Apple laying off people, like the economy of the U.S. is not doing well at all. No. And most of our funders are also from the oil and gas sector in Texas. Okay. Look at what has happened to oil and gas right now. The economy is not doing well. The housing sector is not doing well. That means it has a direct implication. And if you look at the time during COVID, for Latin America, for Africa, we are doing a lot of uh, program, like real program work. And for Latin America, we were doing what we call trips. So the trips, we have donors uh, who are coming from the U.S. So they come to the communities, uh, either in Honduras, Haiti or Mexico, one of our Latin American countries. So what they were doing is just to go uh, drill a well, uh, set it up. By the time they're leaving, they have finished the whole construction. But then with COVID, it means our funders are not able to travel. So if they're not able to travel, that means we actually lost. If we, we quantified, I remember recently we said we are losing about $4 million every year that we used to get um, in Latin America, just from the trips. Because that was like quick money. They come, work with the community, do the drilling with our engineers. In three, four days, they, they are done. You've made X amount for a person. There's a way we cost it. But in total, we are losing about $4 million a year just from that. So now uh, it's tr we are trying. This year, we are I think from this May, we are trying to put back the trips for that Latin America, even Africa. It's relatively safer to travel compared at the peak of COVID. We couldn't. Of course. What, what, what are the impacts did COVID have on wash in africa uh, in africa it wasn't as bad to be honest i think we made very good money because at that time everyone was being asked to wash their hands to sanitize and we ain't wash that is what we are singing to the communities every day <laughs> so we partnered with unicef especially in west africa sierra leone and we have unicef as one of our committed donors so and we are having like uh Every year, they are renewing our contracts. Every year, they are renewing our contracts because the, the trick is once you get a contract with a multilateral like UNICEF, you do it right the first time. 
and then you get repeat donors, repeat. It's easier. And what I keep telling the country teams, it's easier to maintain or retain a donor than to try and get a new one. So I'd rather work on a relationship with the ones we have and ensure every year they can renew their contract or give me multi-year funding than try to establish a new relationship. So that way you have at least a guaranteed base to keep you as you try to get the new ones. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a, a fantastic reflection. I think the common misconceptions is that the temptation is often to chase new money, new partnerships, but investing that time or as that you would spend chasing new partnerships in existing partnerships, I find is always a better use of that time, effort and resource in terms of return investment, in, in terms of just the, the, the pressure uh, on the organization as well, because those, you know, those long term partnerships, they sort of tend to grow beyond the cash, right? They, they, they become sort of a true partnership and much more embedded with each other in terms of trust and partnerships and individual relationships, etc. That's true because like us, what we want is donors who are also interested in change and impact, not just throwing off the money. We want donors who can come and see uh, this is the money we gave, this is what is able to do, this is the change that you're having in the community. And when you when you work with such, there's even fulfillment at uh, organizational level at a personal level you're motivated to work because you can see oh, all the money we're raising this is the the work that is doing uh, and this is the impact that is we are getting on the on the ground and that really helps even in choosing who do we work with because i've been in this sector for a long time so and fundraising is very tricky because you realize people some donors they really just have the money there's a project somewhere i worked and they said uh, the money that we'd have utilized in one year, they wanted us to use it in three months. And I remember the CEO said, no, we can't because you're pushing the burden to us. We can't get a good burn rate with this. We can't get, like, we can't do everything that we're supposed to do in one year in three months. But then they were at risk of not getting their monies renewed if they didn't utilize that money. So you really need to be careful who you're picking, who you're working with, because otherwise even your reputation and there's a reputational risk if you don't do your donor engagement properly. And, and managing expectations is a massive part of that, right? Yeah. In terms of, you know, it, it's not possible to spend three months, uh, you know, a year's worth of funding in three months. No way. And, and, and expect the same quality of, of outcomes. Yeah. And I know there would be a temptation to say, oh, we need the funding this person is willing to give. But if you're realistic you would not do one year work in three months. It means you'll compromise on the time, the quality, and just the outputs will not. Very hard. I, I, I even wonder who, if anyone took up that offer. But I guess that's there's two sort of conversations there, right? In terms of saying no to a donor, uh, it, it can be extremely difficult. There's the internal conversation and then there's the external conversation with the donor. So how do you get internal alignment around saying no and pushing back to a donor? That's a very interesting question because uh, recently we've started a new strategy, which we call Overflow 25. And like if I could summarize for the fundraising part, what we're required to do is only work with donors that are one, mission aligned. Uh, two, that they enable us to do holistic work. And for us, holistic, since we're in the wash sector, would say 
uh, we're able to cover the water aspect, we're able to cover the sanitation and hygiene aspect, and we are able to cover the church and community mobilization. And as you know, most donors would not fund the like church community mobilization. For example, UNICEF as a multilateral will not, or USAID would not cover because they have guiding principles not to discriminate based on gender, religion, age, race. They have that disclaimer. So what we do as an organization, we are trying to set up or find donors. They're donors who just fund the organization, the church and community mobilization aspect. So that, that is covered. Although most of the strategy, because we explain to our donors who we are and what we do, and for us, the church is at the center of everything. Because when you enter the community, we can live because we're in project management. So when we are doing WASH, maybe let's say in, our model is to stay in a, in a community for five to seven years. Then after five to seven years, we can move to the next community because you can't achieve impact in three months. We, can, we don't do random ad hoc projects. So... If we stay in a community for that period of time, you're able to you're able to get impact. But most donors, right, right now, how we explain, because when you enter, we live after five or seven years, living water leaves the community. The government will always be there, the church will always be there. And you realize people listen to whether if you go to a mosque, you listen to the imams, if you go to a church, people listen to their, their religious, whoever they consider their religious authority. And for example, like in Africa, I believe like Kenya specifically is, has like 80% Christianity. So if you listen to, of course, the pastors or the preachers, whoever is your spiritual authority has a lot of say and impact in what we are doing. So that, that works. That works for us because uh, we train them separately. And then they're also able to help us train and mobilize the communities, emphasizing why they need to wash their hands, why they need to stop open defecation, for example. And they listen, and they listen. And the, the church has really helped us in the, doing the work that we do. And we, we like working with the church because we know for sustainability, it's going to work. Whether we are there or not, government will always be there. The church will always be there. So that has really, really helped us in our model here. Yeah. And, and that's sort of a classic approach to identifying your priority audiences and, and understanding who to engage within the community to deliver the impact you need. And I, I think that's probably the same in terms of fundraising as well, right? It's, just, it's having this focus and, uh, and understanding of who are the organizations and who are the people you need to build partnerships with to fund. Because I feel like there's so much potential distraction out there, right? And, and staying focused on fundraising priorities is one of the hardest things to do. How do you keep focused on on your fundraising priority? Because, I mean, do you find it difficult? Is, is there pressure to not focus? And how do you stay focused? Actually, we, we previously, we made a lot of mistakes. That's why we have this new strategy. Since the organization started like 32, we're in the 33rd year. We were doing um, very ad hoc fundraising because yeah, if you're in water sanitation. So previously, we were just in doing water. Then we went, we grew to doing water, sanitation, and hygiene because it's more integrated. So to stay focused, uh, we said, okay, so we have a three-year strategy. And like previously where we have five-year strategies because COVID just changed everything. And we, you, we really have, we sat and thought, okay, why are we wasting time? We're not going to waste time because the level of effort it takes to do a $1,000 proposal is the same level of effort it will take you to do a $10,000 proposal. 
because you still have to do the proposal, whether it's the small one or the big grant, the level of effort is the same. So first, we came up with, um, uh, we reviewed the last three years. We said all the countries that we have, all the 18 countries who has been funding us, we literally listed all in the last in the last three years. We narrowed it down to three years and checked who has been funding us in the last three years. Then we, we summarized. At the end of it, we summarized like, oh, it's actually foundations, multilaterals, bilaterals. Okay. So we said we are going to focus going forward. We'll give more uh, priority to the three categories, if it's foundation, multilaterals, bilaterals. But we're not saying that we can't work with anyone else, but we'll focus our energies more on people we know have the highest chance of giving us uh, the returns because uh, it's, it takes a lot of effort. And then we also came up with like a dummy proposal. And this was uh, guiding uh, all the sectors, whether you are in engineering, we had a water component, we had a sanitation and hygiene, fundraising, HR, admin, defining who we are, what we do. So whether you read uh, our proposal from Liberia, it's the same as someone who's writing from Haiti. So we standardized our language, our approach. We have quality standards. So our quality standards also guide. So that helped a lot to, to look in-house, review and say, no, guys, we're not going to waste time just applying to anyone and everyone. We, it's okay to say no. And we know and we appreciate it as, as an organization. We realize our funding may, may be smaller because of the decisions we make, but there's no need to spend a lot of time writing a proposal, getting rejection, rejection, rejection. And then if you also check the cost of operations, if we're in, for example, if we are we're in this area that we operate, our strategy allows us to stay 80% of the work in what we call the WPA, which is a WASH program area. So we stay there for that five to seven years, but we allow 20% of the work outside. But if you have a drilling rig and you have to move all that equipment, let's say 500 kilometers to another area just to do work for, let's say, 5,000, then you need to calculate. There's fuel, there's transport you have to calculate the staff time, accommodation, because you don't have offices there. You have to get them accommodated. You need to do the math. So people ask, oh, come and drill in my compound. Come and drill in my village. No, we, we can't because it doesn't make sense. So sometimes you have to sit and learn to say no to what makes sense for you. What doesn't make sense for you? Yeah. And that, that, that the sort of full cost of funding, uh, I feel like, it often removes, it's often connected to things that we can quantify in financial terms, but it often misses out things, you know, in terms of resources and, you know, the sort of blood, sweat and tears of fundraising, right? It, it doesn't sort of often quantify that, and that, but that's a cost in itself as well. And I think it's very easy to sort of focus on the top level when it comes to fundraising, the, the amount of money, but it's, it's so fundamental. And, and you've, you've said it perfectly to, to focus on the, what are the whole costs of delivering this? It, it's not just the, it, it's the fuel, it's the staff time, it's the, the opportunity cost as well of focusing on this when you could have been focusing on something else. Yeah, so you really have to evaluate and have a working strategy for what, but that means, you see, like for us, we spent and analyzed 18 countries who's funding us, who, who can we say no to? And we're actually saying no to some people because so the model 
we are saying we are in wash. So if you come to us and say, hey, we want to give you just uh, water, for example, if mm-hmm. you're within our operational area, we'll say yes, because the model allows us to say yes, because the, the organization is funding the sanitation and hygiene, the church and community mobilization. So remember, I said our guiding principle, it, it has to be holistic work and it has to enable us to, to provide sustainable solutions. So, but if you say, hey, come and we'll give you some work 1,000 kilometers away for only water, then we'll say no. The money may be good, yeah. but we'll say no because it will not enable us to do holistic work. And we've changed our strategy to be, we are focusing on holistic because we also want... So this is it's very much about, about your purpose and keeping that focus on your purpose, your values. Is, is actually a really efficient way of running an organization, but specifically when it comes to fundraising and deploying your resources. Yeah, because otherwise you realize you can have like a hundred small grants, but I'd rather spend, uh, analyze, know that this is the type of donor that can fund me, then focus all my energies on getting a hundred thousand dollar proposal than getting the cost of operation for hundred over a thousand of them. It doesn't make financial sense. So the focusing really, really uh, has helped us to know what we want and how we want to do it. If you're enjoying this conversation and would like to hear other global perspectives on fundraising and leadership in the nonprofit sector, then please do subscribe using the links in the show notes. If you want to find out more about our work, please do visit our website, fundraisingradicals.com. Now, back to the conversation. And there are obviously risks with having a lot of your organizational eggs in the institutional overseas funding basket. Are you exploring local and regional funding opportunities in addition to sort of the overseas traditional markets for institutional funding? So you say those are, okay, maybe I need to explain how we work. So we have the global grants team at the HQ. Then I have the regional grants team. Then we have the country grants team. And we did that because uh, it, before we used to call it locally generated revenue, which means it's lo- generated at the country level. Yeah. But then we changed it with a new strategy to call it program generated revenue, which means we want to focus more on raising money for program work. So that, you know, it doesn't mean we have a lot of uh, small um, funding. For example, working with the government ministries like in Rwanda, uh, we partnered with the government to do a project, which I think we've already renewed it twice. So government, we work with government a lot and government is a good source because think about it, all the the FDB is very hard to get direct funding from FDB. FDB will fund government agencies, then you have to go to the relevant ministry to get the funding. Very hard for them to fund you directly unless it's very exceptional circumstances. So either way, you still have, we are still working with the, we know that is a major source of our funding, but it's not sustainable. Like I said, for example, the U.S. economy is very hard hit, so we are not going to close all our country offices. So we still have to, we are raising money from um, the regions and we also diversifying because I realize Europe, there's good funding. And um, I'm also focusing on um, 
these uh, multinationals that are in Europe. I'm looking at the Europe-UK market and there's funding there that uh, we're exploring because um, like the Ministry of Agriculture, like I said, in Rwanda or the Ministry of Water in Kenya, in Uganda, we have small uh, local foundations. We have Heed Foundation, Guyamba Ministries. We have uh, private. We also have individuals who are funding us. So the fund, you have to diversify your funding base because if you look at someone like Cindy's, there's, um, it's a doctor who comes and says, I can fund one or two projects in a school. Yeah, why not? Then they, they're able to, to work with us and partner. So, but we have a guiding principle on someone who enables us to do holistic work. So we've defined to the donor what is holistic for us. And if you're willing, we, we partner in that sense. But you can't have just one source of funding. With this, if anything taught us is COVID, COVID, you can't be, you can't be dependent, donor dependency. So like for us, even as Africa, we can't depend on our U.S. office just to find us all the funding. We have to find funding within Africa as a region and at the country level. So we have grants teams at the country levels and for, for I'm coordinating at the regional level as well. And, and do you see that growing, the sort of funding coming from Africa for your work directly into the programs? Uh, it's, I would say we are trying, but it's not as much because the, the, if you check the ranges, they are so small you wouldn't get um, like a huge funding. Even even the Ministry of Agriculture, for example, in um, Rwanda, their funding, they would say, we'll fund you a lot of money. They give us money. But if you check, their funder is uh, DFID. But they, they, the small fundings, the $5,000, $10,000, they're trying, they're growing. So it depends with uh, what type of an organization you, you are and because someone for some organization, maybe $10,000 would be huge funding for them. Others, it will enable them to do one project, two projects. But what, what I would say all in all is it's good to diversify your, your funding base. But don't do ad hoc things because it was the same level it takes to do a $1,000 proposal is the same level of effort it will take to do a million-dollar proposal. So know the type of work you're doing, who is likely to fund you. Then the next thing is, okay, so where do I fund them? How do I align? Because there's something we tell our teams on donor intelligence. Sometimes I've realized in this fundraising, it's very, very funny. By the time you see a call on a website or a newspaper or somewhere, they already know who they're going to give <laughs> because they, they have strategic partners when they have forums. Like for us, we have WASH forums. You need to go there. You volunteer. When they call for meetings, you're there, you're participating. Because people need to know who you are. So how, how else will they know who you are and what you, you're able to do? So by the time a call is coming, they need to tell you, hey, in the next six months, we'll do a call, you know? So uh, look, for example, uh, if you look at a multilateral like UNICEF, if you check on the UN portal, they have three types of funding that they can do. So they can give you direct selection, you can do an unsolicited, you can just post with their template that they have on their website, or they put up a call for application. So if you go, uh, like all our countries are registered on the UN portal because it covers WFP, UNDP, it covers, of course, UNICEF. So if you want to work with the UN agencies, for example, you have to register on their portals. But 
they have that choice to work with the three categories. And if I was sitting at UNICEF, why would I waste my time throwing calls if I can do direct selection with a partner I've already worked with? They've been pre-qualified. They've done the work before. But it's the reverse. It's the reverse of what you said earlier, right? It's that partnership for them. From a donor's perspective, it's exactly what you're saying as from the from your perspective in terms of it's much better and more efficient to invest in existing partnerships as it is to find new ones, particularly for donors, because the risk is so high and the trust and all of that sort of compounded benefit over the years is already there. So it's sort of a mirror as, as from the INGO perspective. It's exactly what you say, yeah. From my perspective, like I said, from an organization perspective, I'd rather retain my donors. The same thinking with the donor. And we've had instances where UNICEF would tell us, when you finish this call, we're going to put up another call in the next month. So ensure you finish your work on time. Even if they advertise, we know chances are that they'll still end up doing a direct selection. So if anything, like if you think about it, it's, it's both ways. And once you have a donor, uh, we said work on your donor intelligence. Of course, invest in visibility. People need to know who you are. Your website needs to be up to date. Uh, what you're doing, impact of your work needs to be quantifiable. Someone can say, hey, living, if you talk about living water, they'll say these are the wash people. They do wash, they do what. We, we can see, demonstrate the effect. But then most most organizations sometimes you're tempted to, what I say is do it right the first time. If someone gives you their money, you have a contract, ensure your band rate is good, your programs and your finances are, are a good balance. Do it right the first time you get money from the donor. Then it's very easy to maintain that relationship yeah. and they would want to have you as a repeat because it's so much work pre-qualifying people, checking their technical, doing the organization capacity assessment. Are they good? Can they deliver? It's very high risk even if I was a donor. I would invest in someone. I've already gone through that whole path. Of course, it's, it's sort of human nature as well, right? It's sort of like it's it's human nature, right? And I it, know it's interesting. It's also interesting what you say about the importance of visibility, because I think when it, when we're in fundraising, when we're in resource mobilization, the prioritizing communications is, is so vital, particularly when it comes to institutional funding, because. That the process is for many organizations, you know, it's sort of, oh, they've, they've got an unsolicited application stream, you know, let's just fire something in. But that's such a waste of resources, because if you understand how everything's working in the background, the decisions are made at these focus groups, at these meetings, these boards that, you know, some of the organizations actually have advisors plugged into these decision making organizations. Right. And I, and I think it's, it's about competitive advantage about how how can you go beyond the proposal to really think about getting yourself higher up that pile of applications on somebody's desk. And there's the donor intelligence, as you suggested. Then there's the, the sort of partnerships and the delivery. But it's also about being plugged into this and visibility. Is there, are there other things that organizations can do beyond the proposal to get themselves noticed and to grow the likelihood of them being successful in terms of proposals? Yeah, like those two I've mentioned, of course, you need to work on your visibility. You need to work on your donor intelligence. You need to volunteer more. You need to be in the forums 
of the sector that you're in, when people are making decisions, when people are saying if they're coming up with a wash strategy for your country, for example, in my sector, you need to be, if it's an agriculture strategy that you're in, you need to be there to con- making your own contributions, you know, so that people, you also, by that way, you're also contributing your technical competencies to, towards the area that you're, you're focusing on. And then, like I said, you also need to do it right you know, and before that, because if you check critically, chances are that these random proposals that you throw uh, rarely get funded. (laughs) Just uh, you've seen something, they may get funded. You're not saying that no one is going to fund you, but it's more of investing. Fundraising, I would say, is more about relationships. Build your relationship, build your networks. And also when you're doing contracting, you also need to be very careful because you also need to read the fine print because we've had donors that say, for example, if you get a dry well for us, they're not going to fund. So if you didn't read the fine print, that means you may end up wasting money. Then you have to do hydrogeological surveys to repeat the same thing at your own cost. Yeah, but you need to really invest in visibility. What is your? Do you have a communication strategy? Is your LinkedIn page active? Do people see, are you able to, because on LinkedIn, you're able to tag when you're doing the work that you're doing Success stories. So normally I say a good practice is to do at the end of every year, you document uh, what are your lessons learned, uh, what are your success stories, do stories and videos. And if it's even best from the community, let the community members be there talking about the change that they felt from your work. Tag, put it on LinkedIn, tag, tag someone, tweet, tweet about it. And I remember in my previous work, I worked with um, we got some EU funding and every time we had an event, they would send me a text. It's 10 minutes. You've not tweeted. <laughs> you have to tweet and tag, tweet and tag. Because even then they're getting funding from someone else. So they need these stories that they've funded you seen with their donor so that they're able to continue funding you. So it's it's just a whole cycle. Communications is at the center of fundraising work, right? And that's right. What, what you're saying is like, it is really important as well is remembering the humans within the process and remembering that they have targets, they have people above them to keep happy. So if you're equipping them with what they need, if you understand what they need in terms of the stories, the success stories, the reality as well, I think, you know, it's finding that very fine balance between, you know, it's not all about just broadcasting success, but the realities of the challenges as well, but equipping them with that knowledge and those stories and making it easy for them increases the likelihood of that being renewed or you're being successful in another grants round. Yeah, so I remembered something I learned about donors. There's something they call reward and return. And let's say, for example, if I have USID funding me, so USID will not come and say, hey, living water. So USID will not go to the highway and put a big banner and say, USID funds agriculture, infrastructure, wash, but they expect you, who's been funded by them, to say funded by. USID put the logo when you have events. Of course. If you have a mug, you know, yeah. whatever. The branding, the branding, that's their way of the reward and return that they expect from you. So the small things, if you get, work on getting it. Once you get it, work on maintaining it and work on reward and return. That thing I learned from the donor, communication, being in touch with them, telling them thank you. 
And then if people say, oh, okay, we finished this contract, but also maintaining that relationship because you never know, sometimes they may have another call. They can call you and tell you, hey, you need to keep communications, you know, communications and maintaining relationship is really very key in uh, getting uh, you going. You said branding as well. I remember somebody, I can't remember, somebody well-known said that branding, your brand is what other people say about your organization when you're not in the room, mm -hmm. right? And and that's the same sort of situation that the nonprofits, the INGOs, them shouting about USAID or UNICEF, etc., that supports their brand, right? But in the same way, we can work with communities and, and having, when it comes to donors and, and sort of strengthening our brand and reputation of our organizations is when donors hear it from communities. That's why that group can have and their voice and, and enabling them to communicate about impact is so important from an organizational brand perspective as well. So if you speak on something like that, I've just remembered so Living Water for the longest time has been having like an annual gala. So once a year, we have a gala to raise money to support the work that we do. But we don't, it's not the Americans telling donors, hey, support our work in Africa, support our work in India or Latin America. No, we get the community members to go to Houston and talk about their work. I remember in 2014, Living Water did, uh, what was the title? I'll Walk with Lucy. So Lucy was uh, grade six, I think she was in grade six at that time, and sh she was flown to, to Houston to go tell her own story. There's, there's nothing as better mm. as someone else who's going through, the, you know, you can empathize, but if the person who tells the story, that makes a whole difference. So Lucy went, talked about how she has to wake up at five in the morning, uh, walk, go fetch water from wherever, imagine the risks. There's animals, she could be raped, there's insecurity, theft. And this is like a grade six, maybe 12, 13 year old. She has to carry water on her head, then run back home in time to go to school. By the time she gets to school, do you think that child will learn anything? Mm. They're tired, they're drained. Maybe sometimes someone will say, hey, uh, I have a motorbike, I'll go fetch for you, but you have to... They have to sleep with you, with the small kids. And that happens a lot. So the risk. So if Lucy comes and tells the donors, this is what Living Water has done for me. I can go to school on time. There's water right in my school. There's water next to my home. So I don't need all those risks we've cut. Then the parents can even uh, invest in other economic activities. Like the mother doesn't need to go that. She can do farming. She can do something else to generate income for her family. So, of course... Her explaining that to the donor doesn't need any convincing. Anyone can see, oh, wow, these people are doing, they're changing the lives of the communities because it's coming from the source, mm -hmm. direct source. That's also a very good strategy in telling your stories. Don't tell it for them. Let them come and say it by themselves. And what better way of, you know, of, of, of describing something like the, the gendered impact of, of water access than Lucy, someone like Lucy, right? How, because storytelling and, I know there's a you know there's a big movement around localization and empowering communities and it's deeply important about who owns the stories as well and how stories are told. I'd love to hear your your views on that. How do you tell community stories 
ethically and authentically. Okay, so of course, there's uh, different categories when you're doing stories. There's where the community members have the chance to tell their stories. You document, you showcase, right? But there's a time you have to tell the story for them, right? Maybe they won't be able to make it to a meeting. You still need to summarize and say, what was the problem? These three things. What was the impact? What solution? Uh, problem, what a solution did you offer and what was the impact? And that's how we learned how to do our pitches. This was a problem in the community. There was lack of uh, clean, safe water in the community. The solution was uh, we are doing either uh, the boreholes or pipe water systems. Uh, we are also teaching the communities on sanitation and hygiene because it goes hand in hand. Even if you give water and they still have to go, they have no toilets. It means <laughs> that all that mess goes back into the same water that you drill for them. So it has to be water, sanitation, and hygiene. And the impact is there's, re- re- there's a huge reduction in the diseases. We are saving money. We are saving time. All the, the money that they, they would have been using, for example, going to hospital, all the time that they were wasting are going to fetch water. Now they can focus on, uh, on the economic activities. They can also focus on, they, they don't have to be worried about theft, insecurity. So those three things, when you're telling stories at our level, we just summarize, say, this was a problem, this is the solution we offered, and this is the impact that we received. It's great to hear you say all of this stuff. It's, it's, I, I, feel like, I feel like everything you say is, just like, is, is so helpful, and I, and I know that the people listening to this will find it really helpful. What, what is your sort of proudest fundraising moment is there do you, is there one that sort of stands out or a partnership that you're sort of most proud of oh my god there's so many because okay let me just tell you what i stand for then you can relate so i have certain principles i stand by even if you say hey come work for me i would first check if i'll be able to work with you if there'll be change there'll be impact and three if there'll be sustainability I'm, I'm at a point in my life, money is not a big motivator. I know, but for me, it doesn't really. But I'd rather be paid to do work that has those three things. And like I said, for example, that Lucy story, whenever communities come and talk about and say, hey, we worked with Living Water and we have seen drastic change in our health. We're able to focus on our school. Our girls are no longer being raped. Our men can focus the monies. The monies are being shifted to other economic. When communities talk about the impact of the work that we do, that really gives me motivation as a fundraiser to keep raising more money because you're thinking about the change that the work you're doing, the impact it's creating, and you're offering sustainable solutions. So for me, and then another, aside from when communities talk about the change and the impact, I also think about donors like UNICEF we're working so hard to retain and let me just tell your story so we have Burkina Faso as one of the countries in Africa and as you know Burkina Faso is French speaking and most donors are not really interested in investing in a French speaking country right so that is a challenge because because is it because most donors are are English speaking culture language is that because they're coming from the US yes uh, it's it's really, okay, you may know Burkina Faso has had two coups in nine months. So people would be like, mm, are we safe? Uh, are people going to be safe? Is it safe to set up an office over there? But 
in November in 2022, our regional vice president, myself, and like uh, four other people from the region, we said, anyway, let's just go. It's no, it's not it's no longer red alert. They had a transitioning president. I think someone from the government, I forgot his name, took over, and was um, that person was like acting for I think they agreed nine months or something like that. Of course, Burkina Faso is hot. It's like forty five degrees. <laughs> it's very hot. It's harsh climate. It's dry, eh? So even the motivation to go is very low. <laughs> but. The people there, their levels of enthusiasm. And the irony is, it's like one of the only countries where the work we do, the Islam and the Christianity, they've integrated. Like, seriously, they don't care because what they want is just the water. They don't care whether you're Christian, they don't care whether you're Muslim. They work together. And one of the stories was like an imam saying, thank you. We know you're Christians, but thank you because you've made a change in our community. He allowed a well to be built in his compound. An imam, like if you know how radical and how strict they are, that was a big deal. And now that changed the whole area. So all the Christians, like they just, they've just integrated, no one cares. But like for us as an organization, we don't care what your religion is because what we want is to provide clean, safe water to you. So of course we'll preach the gospel. It doesn't mean that you need to convert, but that's part of our mandate just to, to let you know about Jesus Christ. But that uh, Burkina Faso is, uh, so what I was saying, for example, in Sierra Leone, we are working, it's just right in West Africa, like Burkina Faso. So we told the UNICEF guy, like, hey, we are working with UNICEF in Sierra Leone. And he was like, really? So already that, he was like, if UNICEF can trust you there, which means we can trust you there. And already that, that was a basis to start our conversations, you know. There are so many donors. Yeah, but that's just another example of, of the advantages of, of these longer-term partnerships as well, right? Yeah, relationships. It's just they build trust way beyond that partnership as well. And it's, it's a real sort of like a kite mark, I guess, of, of sort of quality and trust. And it lessens other organizations' risk, right, when it comes to funding you or working with you as a partner. I feel very happy when we renew a contract that's like a highlight moment for me like oh my god yeah and if we get like a multi-year grants so like i said before investing in maintaining relationships because if i have a multi-year grant it means you've secured all the commitments you've made to the communities you're able to do all the commitments you've made to the communities so that's i can say is one of the other moments that really gives me a year year moment to look at it like yeah, we are doing something right. We are doing something right. And a donor wants to work with us again. But it, it takes a while to get to that point, right, as well. And, you know, there's the way that funding is that you have, like, you know, NGOs, INGOs making promises to communities. And the way that funding is, the short term and the shifting politics of it makes that really difficult because trust you know, talking about trust in relation to donors, but trust in relation to communities is so easily broken as well. And it's so fundamental to to you being able to do that work. And, and I guess it comes back again to your principles of, of the holistic, sustainable funding. So, yeah, for us, you see, when, when you're signing the contract with the donor, you're committing to certain things. So you need to be very clear. It means that uh, you're committing to delivering certain outputs at a certain time with a certain amount of money. 
But sometimes, you know, when you're doing proposals, it's you're literally proposing something. But when you come to implementation, you realize, oh, we under-budgeted on this line. We over-budgeted on this line. So what I learned, donors don't like when you, it may be a justifiable need, but you really need to go and seek authorization to move monies within the lines because it's it's their money anyway. Of course, they've signed you up for it, but it's their money. So you need to have a meeting, report and say, this is what we propose, this is what we signed, but we are literally not able to do this work. We, this money, we need to move it to this line because of one, two, three, get an approval. That's one way to get to that point of trust. Not just saying, oh, but, but it's a justifiable need. Let me just move it. They don't, they don't understand. They don't understand. So you need really need to work on communicating to the donor in case there's change in what you signed up for. And then also checking how you're implementing your programs versus the finances. Donors check the bandwidth because to say, oh, are these people efficient? Are they effective? Because you also don't want to work with someone who has a very low bandwidth. It means they asked for more than they actually need. So why would I want to fund you next time? So you really need to be, uh, like I said, do it right the first time. When you get the money, make sure you do what you signed up for. Don't take the money to start paying people salaries in another project for another donor. Mm -mm. Don't do, just be very ethical in how you do your operations and seeking approval from the donor. If you could change, make any sort of magical change in the fundraising world or the funding world, what would that be? This world is crazy and it's stressful. It's 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 uh it's very it's very stressful. Like, what would I change? Hmm. I would say um, number one, keep your word. If you're a fundraiser, you really need to keep your word because I think people sometimes people make promises to donors but they either they don't have the skill or the capacity or the ability or the experience to be able to do the work and of course we know sometimes people subcontract there's many ways to come around it but don't promise what you can deliver that's just one way to get blacklisted and donors know each other so once one donor knows like your reputation guard your reputational risk Maybe I would phrase it like that. With whatever you have, guard it. Because it may be in one country, you can say, oh, okay, ah, that, that donor is in Mexico. They won't know what we are doing in Liberia. But still, reputation, these donors talk to each other. They have their own forums. They have their own groups. It's just like the visa thing. So, for example, if today I travel to the U.S., I do something funny. The next thing, if I go to a Canadian embassy, chances are they will not give me a visa. If I go to try to go to get a Schengen visa. And you're like, are their systems integrated? Maybe not, but they talk. Just the same logic, you know. So guarding your reputation, that needs to be really important. And what about donors' responsibilities as well? Because, uh, you know, it's, there's a lot on the INGOs to keep their word and, and deliver, etc. But what about the donors as well? Isn't there some improvement needed in terms of donors keeping their word in, and maintaining and putting more trust in organizations and giving more unrestricted funding and lighter reporting requirements? Is that something that you'd like to see? Yeah. There's many things they can do. I don't know why they give such complex templates. 
they make it but i guess that's part of um like saving when there are too many people applying to a call like they'll say 400 words you have 401 oh you're out so that's both ways they but they can make it easier for people to mm. access funding and even donors can also when they're disbursing funds if you have a schedule we say every quarter let them just send the money at the date and time that you agreed because that also affects all those things they're oh. complaining about the bandwidth if if they send the money late it means i'm not able to do the work until this money comes and if we send you reports kindly give us feedback but cash flow staff contracts and everything it just the knock on effect of a late payment within a donor contract can be devastating to a program in terms of momentum as well so if they give the money we deliver the work but it's two ways if maybe i'm i'm late in delivering on my outputs because you never send your money on time so how about send your money on time and if i send you reports kindly review yeah. and give comments don't wait for end of the year to say oh i didn't like that in the first quarter that you should have done progressive give progressive feedback to also implementing organizations that way they're able to improve progressively and not wait when everything has crashed and then you just crash them more <laughs> and communication it's this is also on donors too to maintain that communication and and, and not wait until the end of the project to put that feedback, but to have it live. Because I think, you know, this is something it's from an INGO perspective, it, it's easy to sort of something little goes wrong and you think, oh, we'll handle it. And it, the donor doesn't need to know, but then that thing gets a little bit bigger. And by the time it gets oh. to reporting to the donor, <laughs> it's just like, it's just like, it's, it's a massive thing. Whereas it's, <laughs> you know, from the INGO perspective, it's like communicate early if you have even the smallest issue, because that is sort of insurance policy, I guess, in terms of that partnership. But then also on the other side, it's just like this have to be effective communication and sort of living to that same standards that donors expect from INGOs too. Yeah, communication. What you said, I agree 100% because whatever happens, just let the donor know. It's better now than, than later. And the basis of that is just trust because if you're because what you're investing with the donor is a relationship and if something goes wrong or you're not able to deliver or you said you'd use this quality of equipment but you got this instead, you know the whole I was saying communicate, it's trust. I'm trusting you with my money to be able to deliver what we agreed. So if anything changes you need to constantly and frequently communicate. So, and that's why we say in the reporting, you need to agree with the donor. They're going to do a monthly report, quarterly, biannually, whoa, what, what reporting? And it needs to be detailed and keeping track. That's why it's very good to invest in the m &E systems because that way you're able to know, are we on track? Are we ahead? You know, so keeping track that helps you to also maintain your donors because you you know that we have three months to go to end of this fiscal year. We've not finished, you know, then maybe you can deploy staff, other staff to come and help do the work if you're understaffed. But if you're not keeping track, then how then will you be accountable? You said, uh, you said fundraising is stressful. How do you, <laughs> how do you manage the stress? How do you stay well in the face of all of this sort of pressure and, partnerships as a as a person or as an organization as a person as a person or, or i i work out by the way I, I go to the gym this week i haven't gone because i had a we were we were doing some training on climate change so i missed 
the whole week. So I know next week when I'm going, my body is going to be in shock. <laughs> I've made it a habit to work out and it's good just for health and fitness. And my friend is convincing me to join a meditation class. Oh, okay. I, I also, <laughs> I'm thinking about that, but I also spend a lot of time with my kids and you know, my kids are young, so they're very demanding. That takes me completely off the work stress because I'm focusing 100% on them and their needs. Keeps you grounded, right? <laughs> How old are your kids? How old are your kids, Lillian? The turning four and two. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That, that's it. They are demanding ages. So very young. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That, that really helps me. <laughs> I'd love to say that my seven-year-old and my eight-year-old are less demanding than they were when they were three and four, but I'm not so sure. Ah, I think it's definitely better because it's infant and toddler. It's just, you feel like you have two infants yeah, in the house. Yeah. It's demanding yeah. and they can be. So like when I'm at home, I completely do not think about fundraising and targets and everything. And just having family time, that really helps me, keeps me grounded. Yeah. It's so lovely to see you and, and lovely to catch up. I really appreciate your time and for sharing all of your wisdom and experience. Um, I'm sure uh, the people who are listening will have taken a lot from this conversation. So thank you so much, Lillian, and very best of luck with your doctorate. Oh, thank you, Craig. I'll, when, when I'm really even waiting like, just for the data analysis and the report, I'll send you an email. I think it's going to be very interesting even for you. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure it will be. And also good luck with your fundraising. Not that you need it because you're um, you're something of a a superstar when it comes to those uh, those big uh, relationships and partnerships. So fantastic! Oh no, hmm. we we're trying. I think we we all trying. It's I can't say like I'm the best, but spending time in fundraising over the years, you just learn a thing or two. When you're burnt once, I'm sure you don't want to do that same thing again. And we're growing. And when I think right now we're very focused with our strategy, we know who we want to partner, and we can say no, which is a big thing for me. I never thought like you'd say no to a donor. So I think we are growing even in this uh, fundraising field. Yeah, and thanks for having me. That's an absolute pleasure. Take care. Random proposals rarely get funded. And as a fundraiser, keep your word. These are just two of the many helpful, straight-talking statements from Lillian that can guide our fundraising. I love how she takes the challenges in her stride and is open about the mistakes she's made in the past and how she's learned from these. Living Water's guiding principles have clearly helped to create a solid global framework that is nurturing fundraising. They're committed to only work with donors that are mission aligned and that are funding holistic work. Holistic work that includes the church and community engagement parts of the program's work. They're committed also to understanding and recovering the full cost of delivering their programs, a challenge that must go beyond cash and consider the whole costs of programs. And then there's Lillian's clear focus and analysis of funding opportunities. For example, instead of pushing to diversify to new types of donors, she's following the evidence of what she knows already works by working better and smarter with the types of donors that they already work with, those that they know fit well with how living water in Africa works, and those that have already delivered high quality programs in partnership, and where they are well positioned 
to secure additional income. However, she also talks about how she thoughtfully prioritizes new opportunities as they arise and how they're trying and exploring the opportunities of funding within Africa, which are currently small but growing and therefore are on the radar of her donor intelligence gathering. Now, I completely agree with Lillian's mantra to do it right first time. And the role of personal relationships that underpin institutional grant fundraising just as much as raising donations from local companies and wealthy individuals. The challenge is always to resist the temptation to chase new partnerships when it's much easier and much more efficient to retain a donor than to secure a new donor. So if donor retention is the chicken, then the egg is donor engagement. It's hard to tell which comes first, they grow together. Retention comes from engagement and engagement deepens retention they are mutually reinforcing. But this cycle also works well from the funder's perspective. Working with trusted partners who are consistent and reliable is a practical real life strategy that reduces funders' risk. It comes down to making it as easy as possible for donors to fund you and to ensure that they can continue funding you. And then making sure that you have things that keep you grounded and time to switch off from fundraising. I hope you enjoyed meeting Lillian today and that her focus and practical tactics help to inform and inspire your own fundraising practice. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the Fundraising Radicals podcast and that this conversation has challenged, informed and maybe even inspired you and your fundraising leadership practice. Please do check out the show notes, subscribe to the podcast on the platform of your choice and do visit fundraisingradicals.com to find out all the ways in which we're working to empower, equip and engage fundraisers all over the world.